What is honey? What's honey? A bee flies around and it, it uh, eats the pollen or nectar or whatever, and then it goes back to its hive and it's digested a bit. It burps it back up and then it eats it again and it burps it back up and it eats it again and it burps it back up until eventually it's created what we like to spread on our toast with peanut butter or put in our tea. Honey is bee barf. Pretty gross. Uh, in Asian cultures, how many of you are familiar or have seen pictures of geishas in Asian culture? They're the, the, the women that are actually adored and, um, and they wear the white makeup on their faces. Anybody familiar with what that white makeup actually is? It's nightingale poop. They spread nightingale poop all over their faces to become what are known as some of the most beautiful women in Japanese culture. Anyone a mushroom fan? Mmm, <laughs> fried mushrooms with steak. A portobello burger. Mmm. But what is it that makes a mushroom so succulent and tasty? Lots of mushrooms are actually grown in horse manure or in compost, which is basically another way of getting manure. So uh, <laughs> mushrooms are grown in dung. Get, getting the point? God does some pretty amazing things with stuff that are pretty gross. What about, I know we have some avid fisher people here, right? Can anybody tell me what a sardine is? A sardine? There's actually not a fish called a sardine. Sardines actually, they come from, they're like the small proteinaceous little fish that swim around in the ocean that other bigger fish eat. They're actually part of a group of uh, probably over 20 different fish that fishermen, when they catch, they have nothing better they can do with them, so they cut their heads off and they cram them into a can and we call them sardines. There's a salmon, there's a trout, there's pickerel, there's uh, perch, but there's really no such thing as a fish called a sardine. They're the tiny crap fish of the sea that we eat and lots of people consider them, you know, a delicacy. Okay, so <clears throat> maybe you're asking at this point, where am I going with all this? But please humor me with, with one more example. And this one actually has some kind of theological significance to it. So what is the form that the Holy Spirit often takes when the, when the Holy Spirit is, presents itself to people? A dove, right, a dove. And can anybody tell me what a dove actually is? A pigeon, exactly, a pigeon. A, pi a dove is actually a pigeon. The only thing that kind of distinguishes it is it's a tiny little bit smaller and its feathers are a different color. But uh, some people actually like to call pigeons the uh, rats with wings, right? They're, they're kind of like the trash birds of the bird kingdom. Um, but a dove is, is kind of the poetic name for these trash birds. Little hint to you guys who call your wives dove or lovey-dovey. <laughs> Probably not such a good idea. But isn't the dove just a wonderful expression of how God works to bring nature and theology together? It's the symbol that God, the symbol that God represents the Holy Spirit with is, is a trash bird. Is it accidental? I, I don't think so. I think it's a pretty amazing example of, of how God works. What about Jesus? Think about Jesus for a moment. Where did Jesus uh, come from? Where was he raised? A little town called Nazareth, little backwoods kind of town, where at the time, in, time and place and culture, uh, people would say nothing good could ever come from Nazareth. What good could come from Nazareth? Because it was a little backwoods hick place. Nothing good came from Nazareth. And where was Jesus born? 
in a stable. Lots of farmers here. What goes on in a stable? Lots of messes, lots of stink. And so you think about it, one of the first smells that Jesus Christ, Messiah, the Savior of the world, smelled when he entered the world was dung. Can you imagine? And, and what do you think were the last smells that Jesus smelled when he exited the world? Jesus was, was crucified just outside of, uh, of Jerusalem and uh, in, a, in a place called Calgary, or, or Calvary, not Calgary. <laughs> I had a story. My, my, friends, my, my friend had, uh, or when he was young, he had, his parents had friends from Calgary come by, and when they came by, they, they said, these are our friends from Calgary, and he's like, Calgary, that's the place my Savior died. And ever since then, I always... Anyhow, Jesus was... Jesus was crucified on Calvary or, or Golgotha. And what's not, maybe not so well known about Golgotha is that it was a, a little hill outside of town that was actually, it was actually the dump for the town. And so the last thing Jesus probably smelled as he left the world was trash. He entered the world smelling burn fresh smells. He lived in a backwoods town called Nazareth. He left the world smelled smelling trash. You see, here's the thing. God, God actually looks at things from a different perspective than we do. He sees things very different from us. And that's reflected in the passage that I want to share with you this morning. If you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to 1 Corinthians, which is probably about three quarters of the way through the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1. Um, Paul is writing to the, the church. It's a new church in Corinth, and they've apparently got some things kind of wrong in their thinking. And so this is what Paul says to them, verse 18 to 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we, ch- we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. One of the main reasons that Paul was writing this, it wasn't actually a book when Paul wrote it. It was a letter that he was writing to this new church in Corinth. And one of the reasons that he was writing it is because they'd, they'd kind of gotten some things wrong in their thinking. Um, they, were, 
they had some issues that had arisen. And one of the, one of the main issues that, that had arisen was that spiritual pride had found its way into the church. Apparently, even early on in the life of the church, there were issues that caused the church to divide into factions. The issue they were fighting about was whose teaching they should follow. Paul had heard the Corinthian believers divided into groups, and they were, it was based on who was the best teacher, who was the most influential teacher, or who was the most appropriate teacher for their time. There were those who thought that, that maybe Paul was the most appropriate person to follow because he's the one who had actually founded the church in Corinth. There were some that believed there, that there was this, this guy named Apollos who apparently was a really influential and persuasive teacher, and they thought, oh, maybe we should follow him. Some thought that, that Peter was the best person to follow because he had actually been with Christ and followed Christ, and so they thought, well, maybe he's a good guy to follow. And then there were those who thought that, that there were these other people to follow because they were, they were tooting themselves as, you know, the big guy on campus, and I've done some pretty amazing things, and, have, and you know, some of the teaching that I've given you is pretty, pretty impressive. So there were, there was these spl- splits in the church about who it was they were supposed to follow. And that was, you know, first century of the church, the new church. It doesn't seem terribly different from some of the things that, that actually continue to cause churches to divide today. Who's got the best preaching in town? Who's got the best music in town? Who's got the best kids ministry in town? Who's got the funkiest hairdo? I think Mark has a pretty funky hairdo, so I, I kind of lean towards him. But, but you see, apparently... Ancient wisdom and conventional wisdom weren't all that different. Both say that it's the wise and the powerful and the wealthy and the influential and the persuasive who get the highest status. The early church was divided because of the exact same thing. Was it Paul who was more important or Apollos or was it Peter or some other guy who happened to be a good preacher or whatever? Churches today can suffer from the exact same issues, and often it's the churches that have the biggest or the newest, fanciest buildings who people flock to, or the best, most charismatic or influential teachers. Because conventional wisdom, much like ancient wisdom, said that it was those types of things that that mattered. But God's wisdom tells us that, that those things have absolutely no lasting value. The message of the cross, the message of God's love for us, the message of his provision of salvation for us, of his um, restoration and empowering us, doesn't make any sense at all when you compare it to conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom and the cross are actually completely incompatible. If you think about it, think about the message of the cross. We place our hope in a Messiah who was crucified on a cross. How does that stand up to conventional wisdom? If you're looking from the outside in, how would that stand up? The very idea is, is kind of scandalous. Our leader and our hero is dead. Right up until his death, Jesus' followers thought he was going to rally the troops, that he would lead the nation of Israel into battle against their oppressors. And that after centuries of oppression, the Jewish people would be free at last, that they would have uh, they would at last have control over their, their own destiny. But that's not, that's not the message of the cross. What happened? Their leader died a humiliating death on the cross. Does, that, does it make sense? It doesn't make sense. The early church acted as though they understood the whole notion that God chose them even though they, they didn't deserve him. 
And I think we often convince ourselves that, that we understand it too. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his forgiveness. We accept it, but I'm not sure that we necessarily understand it. We live in a world where everyone has rights and, and uh, whatever we get is kind of, you know, we deserve that. For example, I have a, I have a decent job and um, so I, I, should, I should be able to have a nice house and a nice car. I deserve to have people respect me because, you know, I'm not a horrible person. I'm decent enough to other people, so people should respect me. I deserve to have all of my needs met um, all the time. If, 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 uh, if, if I have a need, they should be, should be able to be met. That's where we, we live in a country that, uh, that values that. I deserve education, health care, social security, safety, life, and liberty. I'm no worse than my neighbor, and maybe I'm a little bit better than some people, so if they deserve God's grace, why shouldn't I deserve it? The reality, the reality is that no one, not a single one of us, is deserving of God's grace. If we were, it wouldn't be grace. God didn't choose us based on our merit, or based on our skill, based on our ability to serve. If we could, if we could repay him, by any of those things, as, as if we could. We couldn't even repay him for even his smallest of mercies. The fact is that the fact that, that God chose each one of us here today doesn't make sense. And the fact that not only has he saved us and forgiven us, and he's chosen us to be a part of his family, but he chooses to use each of us. The fact that he chooses to use us makes no sense. He used Paul a persecutor of the church. Paul went around, he persecuted the church, he arrested them, he threw them in jail, he had Christians killed. And yet he, he used Paul as one of the greatest missionaries, one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. Does that make any sense? It makes no sense. And the reason for that is we have an upside-down, inside-out gospel. It takes the expectations of the world, it takes conventional wisdom, and it turns it on its head. The gospel is all about the way that what is most weak, what's most despised, what's most contemptible in our lives can become through the power of the Holy Spirit, through nothing that we can do, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it become what, what is most beautiful, what is most radiant, and what can be most of a blessing to the people around us. What did Jesus say? He said something about, if you want to be first, you have to be willing to be last. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? It totally goes against culture. totally goes against the flow. And how often do we get it wrong? How many First United Churches are there out there? How many First Baptist Churches are there out there? There's First Everything kind of churches out there. But how often do you hear of, you know, Last Baptist Church or the Last Methodist Church? You don't hear it. We've gotten it wrong. We, we try to take conventional wisdom and, you know, we... And it's just not right. Paul says, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. You hear stories time and time again about people coming to Jesus Christ at the lowest points in their lives. When they've hit rock bottom. When things just can't get any worse off. Think about where you were when, when, uh, when you found Christ. I know when I found Christ, I wasn't deserving. We weren't, I wasn't wise enough to deserve Jesus. I wasn't influential enough to deserve him. I didn't deserve his grace because I was born into the right family. 
none of us were deserving of his grace. It's not at all like the world tells us it should be. Once you're good enough, then you can, you can be in the club. Once you're smart enough, then you can come and you can hang out with the elite and you can have a pristine, perfect job. Once you're athletic enough, then, then I'll pick you first for my team. Once you're skilled enough, then you'll make the cut and you'll get a good job. The gospel, again, it turns that thinking on its head. If you want to be strong, you have to be willing to be weak. If you want to win, you have to be willing to lose. God can turn any trash into treasure if we let him. If we let the Spirit take our pain and our suffering, our ugliness, our hate, our anger, our weakness, our inabilities, he can take all of those things and he can turn them around into something of value. How many of you remember a young man named Joseph in the Old Testament? Do you remember what happened to Joseph? He was one of 12 brothers. He was hated by all 11 of his other brothers. He was so despised by them that they took him, they stripped his clothes off, they threw him in a well, and they sold him to this caravan of people going by. And, and then he was sold into slavery. And after years of being in slavery, as if it couldn't get worse than that, he got thrown into jail where he lived in a dark, dungy prison cell for years. If that doesn't sound like crap, then I don't know what is. And yet, God took that crappy situation, and he, he used that situation not only to save the nation of Israel, but to save the Egyptians from, uh, from famine. And, uh, and the, the Israelites eventually became the chosen people of God because Joseph, because Joseph lived through a crappy situation, and God used that. What about one of the most famous classical composers of all time? Has anyone heard of Ludwig von Beethoven? We've all heard of Beethoven. What's one of the worst things that could possibly happen to a composer? They go deaf. And probably most of you know that the last 12 years of, of Beethoven's life, he was deaf. But did you know that in the last 12 years of Beethoven's life, he composed five of his greatest symphonies? Stone deaf. And that is the story of the gospel. Read your Bible over and over and over again. God does it. He turns horrible situations into blessings. He turns cursing into, uh, into curing. He turns weakness into victory. The curse of being nailed to a cross was transformed into a symbol and an act of forgiveness and salvation. And that is the gospel in a coffee bean. You hold the gospel in your hands there. Whatever is the worst, the least, the last can be turned into blessing to those around us. Moses was a murderer. God recycled his rage and hatred, and he became one of the greatest leaders of Israel. Jacob was a thief and a rogue. He stole his brother's inheritance. But God recycled his cunning, and he became the father of a nation. David wrote so many books wrote so many amazing things. He was a great leader, but he was also an adulterer and a murderer. But God used his passion and made him one of the greatest kings of Israel's history. Peter was a boastful, kind of rough-around-the-edges fisherman. God recycled his pride and made him into the rock that Jesus Christ built his church on. God recycled Mary Magdalene's sensuality. She was a prostitute. She became a saint. Saul of Tarsus was the persecutor of the Christians. God recycled his hatred, and he became the greatest theologian 
evangelist, missionary the world has ever seen. What about you? What's the least in you? What's, what's at the very dregs of, of your life? Whatever it is, God can take it. He can turn it around. He can turn it inside out, upside down, make it into a source of healing, a source of wholeness, a source of redemption, and a source of blessing to those around you. To believe that, that God wants to recycle your life, I believe that he does. Do you believe that he wants to turn what's the worst in your life into treasure? He can do it. Do you believe that he wants to take what's worst into the best in your life? There are a lot of people who, who believe in God. The Bible says that even the devil believes in God. What we need is to be people who don't just believe in God, but we believe God. People who believe that the Messiah who died on the cross brings victory to our lives. People who believe that despite the fact that we don't deserve it, because we, we don't, God actually chooses each and every one of us. People who believe God enough that they'll allow him to radically transform their lives and allow themselves to be used by him. Over the, over the past couple of weeks, Pastor Mark has been talking about spiritual gifts. He's identified some of those to us. He's identified what some of those are. And I know some of you have probably taken that online test and identified what, what your gifts are. But I think if we don't come from the right starting point, we don't recognize that God can actually use us. It's nice to have this gift, but some of us feel like, you know what? I'm just not, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough for God to use me. That's not the case. God takes what's trash and uses it for treasure. We all are on a level playing field. None of us is any more deserving of God's love or his grace or to be transformed or to be used by him than any other. There's a realm of difference from believing in God to believing God. If you believe God, if you believe that he wants to change you and transform you, your life can never be the same. We have a God who can turn trash into treasure, a God that wants to use that treasure, you. You're all a treasure of God to impact the world around you. I hope you believe that this morning. If you didn't accidentally eat your coffee bean, then uh, you might want to save it and put it somewhere where it will remind you that God has, has taken you. He's made you into something of value. It remind you that God's message, the whole message of the gospel can be contained in something as simple as a coffee bean. Miracles happen when the design, divine intersects with the ordinary. So I, I want you to go this week, and I hope that you're encouraged. God loves you. He wants to take whatever trash is in your life and turn it into treasure. He wants you to know and experience his love, and he wants you to share that with those around you.